In order that all sentient beings may attain benefit from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain benefit from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain benefit from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the, whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Majushri, please accomplish this. Good evening, welcome. Chris, Matt, Brent, Liz, all right, cool. Hi everyone. Great to see you. Thank you for being here. And so tonight we uh, progress with our exploration of Dudra, <laughs> the collective topics. And uh, we're starting tonight on page 63. And before we start, Can you get the um, section header, please? Maybe. <laughs> it's a reasoning in the collected topics, and it's part three. Of, it's chapter three of part one. Reasoning in the corrected topics. This part was a little difficult, huh? This little chapter was a little, little bit of a tongue twister or something like that, a mind bender. If you're not used to this stuff, how did people find the readings? How are they? How are you finding them in general? Is there too much reading? Too little reading? Is it good or bad? Exciting? Gripping? I see. Okay, that feedback was, really helps. It was easy because <laughs> I just realized. I'm not getting this. Let me just skim through it. <laughs> oh, come on. Don't say that. You're going to get this. So uh, the fun thing about this is that it, it's cumulative, and uh, it will repeat a lot of things over and over in different ways and sort of build on them. So it will help you uh, backfill as we go forward, so to speak. Yeah, the last section was good. I, I could grasp that one. That was easy. Yeah, that was fairly straightforward. I wanted to start out just uh, take a quick peek at uh, the, the uh, table of contents of a book called The Treasury of Abhidharma. You may have heard of it. It's by a gentleman named uh, Mr. Bandhu. Uh, his first name is Vasu. So Vasu Bandhu. And... Uh, we, we in the West here, we have an idea of like what Abhidharma is or Abhidharma. And we think of Abhidharma as like aggregates and skandhas and ayatanas and datus and so and that sort of stuff, right? Is there anything else in the Abhidharma? Any ideas? What's included in Abhidharma? The elements of existence. Any, any thoughts? Before we take a peek, I was going to be specious and say phenomena. <laughs> phenomena, yes, phenomena. 
Exactly. Aggregates, ayatanas, uh, and datus. Okay. And they so, also they're somewhat to how they relate to each other? How they relate to each other. Good, yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's the kosha. Okay, yeah, the datus. Sense elements is the first chapter. Skandhas, ayatanas, classifications of dharmas, problems, the 18 datus, the indriyas, the controlling faculties, the 22 controlling faculties, mental states. Dharma is not associated with the mind. Right? We're familiar with that now, non-associated phenomena. Causes, six of them. Conditions, four of them. The world, living beings in the physical world, variety of them, colors, shapes, sizes, dependent origination, and the transmigration, life and death, the physical world, cosmology, time and space, karma. Karma, nobody mentioned karma, of course. Well, Cynthia said how they interact, karma. The courses of action and its results, <gasps> The Bodhisattva, what's that doing here? That's cool. Um, latent defilements. The Anushayas. They, 98 of them. Holy Jesus. Got a lot of work to do. Abandoning of them. The path. And here come the saints. Oh, when the saints come marching in. The Four Noble Truths. The paths of seeing and so forth. So forth. A shaiksha path. I can't remember what that is. I think it's the path of no more learning. The various paths, the knowledges, the relationships between the patiences, the knowledges, and seeing. Now that's a cool title, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, what does that mean? The patiences. <laughs> Losing my patience. The ten knowledges and eighteen qualities unique to a Buddha. The absorptions, samapatis, the four dhyanas, the four arupa or formless ones. And lastly, chapter nine, the famous chapter nine is on the person, but the pudgala and refutation of the vatsiputriyas, the pudgala vadins, uh, sort of uh, related school. So, anyway, there's a lot of stuff in there. It's like an encyclopedia of Buddhism, right? It's way more than what we think of as Abhidharma now. And so, yeah, a lot of this has been chopped up into what uh, what we would call other topics. Okay. Let's dive into our reading here tonight. The reasoning and the collected topics. So this is a little convoluted, complicated, but... um. It's not the focus of this course. It comes up as one of the major uh, things in the next course, the next volume, the next book and course. And so here it's just uh, uh, becoming acquainted or more acquainted with uh, reasoning, and, excuse me, in the Buddhist tradition and how it works and goes and so forth. So we're not going to like dwell on it endlessly and try to figure out every little nuance because we'll come back to it later on and it's not essential for this volume. 
And I'm going to pretty much read through things because uh, um, if I skip around, I don't know if that's going to work too much. So let's see. Based on essential points concerning negation and affirmation and how they're established through logical reasoning, in particular drawn on Dharma Kirti's seven treatises. So he's he's he and Dignog are the two logic guys in Buddhism, and he's famous for having written seven treatises on logic, and in particular one of them, which is the commentary on valid cognition, which is the main source text in the remake, uh, sorry, in the Shadra curriculum for the topic of valid cognition. The uh, Sanskrit, the Pramanavartika of uh, Vasubha of Dharma uh, Kirti. And he lives a couple of hundred years after Dignaka, who also wrote a bunch of texts on logic. And uh, Dharmakirti went about sort of like advancing this, the, uh, the presentation, tightening it up and uh, summarizing it uh, in his seven texts. And uh, one of them is very long, the, the root text I just mentioned, and the others are generally very short and they focus on specific topics. And their commentaries, such as the essential points established when examining how language and concepts relate to objects, or the presentations on logical reasons, which are the basis of inferential cognition. Two types of cognition. There's uh, direct cognition, which is, happens primarily through our senses and is non-conceptual. Direct is another term for non-conceptual. And um, then there's inferential cognition. These are the two types of valid or authentic cognition. There's other types of inauthentic cognition, such as rumor. <laughs> uh, but valid cognition in the Buddhist tradition is these two types, inference and direct cognition. Inference uses conceptuality or repudiation or consequential reasoning which is the Prasangika's favorite activity, dessert, and that reveal internal contradictions within the assertions of others. A written tradition known as the Collected Topics, which organized these points in a curriculum and training and logic for beginners, became widespread among Tibetan logicians. Here we'll see a brief outline of this system of logic as an introduction. Uh, the collected topics emerged in Tibet through the introduction of a unique system of logic initiated by the 12th century Kadampa master. Who started the Kadampa school? Ten points. <laughs> tick, tick, hint. Lojong. Tick, tick, tick. Asanga? Asanga! No, uh, close. He starts oh. with an A. Oh, sorry. Um... A t-shirt. Atisha. Atisha. <laughs> Sorry. I knew I would do that. That's why I didn't want to answer. <laughs> Atisha started the Kadampa tradition, one of the earliest schools in the later evolution of Buddhism in Tibet. First, there's the Nyingma school with Padmasambhava and Shantarakshita, Vimalamitra and Vairochana. And I'm saying all these names and texts and people in the hope that over time you guys get familiar with these things and you gradually know all these dudes and where they fit. Um, and then uh, there's a uh, 
what's it called, the persecution of Buddhism by Long Dharma, and then the Dharma comes back gradually, and the Kadampa is one of the earliest schools that was uh, established by Tisha, comes in in 1142 to Tibet, and stays only for about, I think, 10 years or something, 13 years, but uh, makes a big mark on Tibetan Buddhism. Okay, uh, so this gentleman is a student of that tradition, or a master, sorry, Chapa Chuki Senge, extremely learned in logic and epistemology. He composes these various texts on logical reasoning. And uh, it's sort of, it's actually really interesting in that Tibetans generally look to Indian texts as the be-all and the end-all. But this gentleman creates a way of understanding the system of logic of Dharma, Dignaga and Dharmakirti in a really sort of revolutionary way of breaking it down into very uh, simple, uh, relatively simple elements to give access to the to the very deep complexity or profundity of the, the uh, writings of Dignaga and Dharmakirti. So it's really quite an accomplishment. In these texts, Chapa, Summer, funny name, Chapa, summarize the subjects of logic epistemology, such as valid cognition and the objects it ascertains. So valid cognition ascertains certain objects, and certain objects are ascertained by invalid cognition. Rumors, right? Are ascertained by invalid cognition. Anyway, uh, objective worlds and subjective minds. Identity and difference. So these these topic these odd topics that sound like really bizarre, like what identity and difference? What does that mean? And what's what's that got to do with my meditation practice? <laughs> but uh, identity and difference is like are uh, phenomena the same or uh, different? And what is the significance of that? And how do we know that? Universals or generalities, generally characterized phenomena and particular, specifically characterized phenomena. Substantial phenomena and abstract phenomena. Substantial phenomena are objects of uh, direct valid cognition and abstract phenomena are objects of conceptuality. Contradiction and relation cause and effect, and the tripart, the tripartite of definition, the definiens. These are really cool words. You can really impress people with these words. Definiens, definiendum, and instance, and so on. Anybody know what a definiens is? Mary Beth. Uh the definition. The definition. And uh, Jill, what's the definiendum? Definiendum. Defini the phrase being or word being defined. That which is defined. The definition. Fire is hot and burning. That which is being defined is a fire. And what's an instance? <sighs> There's a fire in the, in the fire pit, right? Okay, and so on. He systematized the presentation of these topics, which in a threefold framework 
refutation of the positions of others, presentations of his own position, and the rebuttal of objections. Furthermore, texts on the next page, texts such as epistemology, etc., inspired other introductory texts, including those, including those in the science of cognition, known in Tibetan as Lorik. So we've got Dudra, it's collected topics, and then Lorik is the science of cognition. Uh, Lo is mind, is one of many words for mind, and Rick is science in this case. And it's the same root of the word uh, Rikpa. And the science of logical reasoning, Lo Rick, that were aimed at beginning level study, beginner level study. Even today, this tradition of studying the science of cognition, logical reason, and collected topics continues without decline in Tibetan centers of learning, i.e. shadras. On the basis of Chapa's text, the condensed epistemology, different abbreviations and presentations appeared bearing such names as blah, 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 not, not important particularly. Uh, but the organization of the points explicitly presented it in that text into 18 separate topics became widely established. What, a, what an odd like number, 18, and an odd collection of topics, particularly the first one, color, white, and red. We saw this earlier, and this is, the, is an abbreviation for phenomena in general and they start with the objects of visual consciousness as colors and the first two colors they talk about are white and red <laughs> so this is shorthand and then we launch off into all these odd things some of which we just looked at substantial and abstract phenomena contradictory non-contradictory universe particulars etc etc i'm not going to read through all of those next paragraph in later systems of um, calculating the topics of Chapa Chikisenge's condensed epistemology, different methods of enumeration emerged. Okay, training and logical reasoning. The summary topics are traditionally presented in that threefold approach, approach we just mentioned of refutation, positing, and rebutting. This approach is an important means of training the mind and logical reasoning. When one first analyzes a given topic, one cites the views of others that are flawed and refutes them, then puts forward one's own views, and when objects are raised, objections are raised, one dispels them. Regardless of the topic, when engaging in critical analysis by way of this threefold method, one will be able to develop a comprehensive understanding of the issues involved. Therefore, the, the logical reasoning of the collected topics is an extremely useful system. Now, when one enters the path of reasoning of the collected topics, there are three main components of speech. The proof, namely the logical reason, the predicate, and the subject of the dispute. Now, normally these are listed in the opposite order because they usually appear in a, in a logical statement in the opposite order of subject. Predicate is what you're predicating about that subject. And then the proof is the reason, the logical reason. Dividing one's statement in terms of these three components, the task of negation or affirmation is done through formulating an argument that reveals a consequence, thus framing a form of discussion 
between proponent and opponent that highlights the essential points. So they're going to explain this in the format of debate, which is how this is usually done in the traditional um, settings. To illustrate these three components, reason, predicate, subject, let's consider the following argument. Take sound as the subject under investigation. It follows that it is not produced because according to you it is permanent. How are we doing so far? Do you guys agree with that? Nah. <laughs> so this is the view of others, so-called others, right, that we're going to refute. Okay, um, it follows that it is not produced because according to you, it is permanent. Uh, in this trimodal consequence, sound is the subject, not being produced is the predicate, sound is not produced, and the reason being is being permanent. The fact that sound is not produced, which is the combination of sound, the subject of the dispute, and being not produced, which is the predicate, constitutes the thesis of that three-part syllogism, is another way that this trimodal consequence is usually called. Um, so the thesis is the first two parts, the subject and the predicate. Sound is impermanent, is the supposed uh, hypothesis. The fact that sound, let's see, sorry, the entailment. So the entailment is the technical term uh, being uh, meaning pretty much the same as the consequence. The consequence of sound being um, not produced is that if something is permanent, it is necessarily the case that it is not produced. And that's the actual pervasion. So the term pervasion is an odd little bugger. And uh, it probably takes some time to get a handle on what they're talking about with pervasion. But think of the sets of phenomena that we looked at with the, the Venn diagrams of uh, sets of phenomena and they're either like separate or they're overlapping or they're identical, right? Sets of phenomena. So you have sets of phenomena and now we've, uh, we've had some examples of sets of phenomena. We have sound and there's many different types of sound and there's uh, phenomena that are not produced and there's, there's a few of those and phenomena that are permanent. There's a few of those. And so the idea of pervasion is that um, the something has to pervade something else. And in this case, we're talking about first the logical reason pervading the subject and the predicate. And if, if, um, if it pervades, uh, adequately, you know, another better word is probably apply. If the reason applies to both the subject and the predicate, then we go along with it. That's the, the meaning of this pervasion. Uh, let's see. The being produced is the opposite of the predicate not being not produced. 
fancy, confusing language, right? Let's try that again. Where the hell am I? Um, Can I ask a quick question in the pause? Yes. I, I kind of think of pervasion as being such that you will not find an exception, right? So in other words, all cases will have that attribute. Right. So it has to be all or none. Say right. Again. All or none. Exactly. There's and no. You were going to give an instance and a ring. Well, I'm going to say, which makes this one of the reasons why is I can, I can, my cognition can perceive a sound that is produced which is why I would negate this statement, you know, this, this example, because I, I don't find this it pervasive. Logic, this logical statement. Yeah, this logic, yeah. Right. Because I can so find examples. It has, to, it has to apply to all members of the set. If it doesn't apply to all of them, then it's not an ironclad syllogism. And it doesn't produce valid inferential cognition. You know, if it's a if it's a well, maybe <laughs> that doesn't cut cut it. Being produced is the opposite of the predicate. Being not produced, so he's doing the negatives of these things to show that we have to have a uh, the this thing called pervasion in uh, what they call both ways, forward and reverse order, so that. Um, the let's see if I can get this right. <laughs> Morgan, help me out. You know this stuff really well, or anyone else. The uh, the forward per say. I think they mean that if anything anything that's permanent must be not must be not produced, and anything that's not produced must be permanent. That's great. That's very simple, right? It has to go both ways, right? And and you have to do it well. You need to do it both ways because um, one could be a subset of the other, right? Not produce could be a subset of permanent phenomena. And um, so you need to also say, well, anything permanent is not produced. And so then they're identical and they pervade each other. So that's the first example, and it's a little easier to see how it works with more examples. But And so we have the chart on the next page, the reason predicate, and... Oh, I, I skipped some sentences there. Let me read through those. Being produced is the opposite of the predicate. Um, so what you do is, as we said, um, it's sound is not produced because it's permanent is the, the positive um, presentation. And then the reverse of that is not being, being not produced and being imper impermanent are the opposites of the uh, thesis and the reason that we're given in the original syllogism. You turn, you turn around the, uh, you, you provide the opposite of both of those members and you make sure that it works in the reverse direction as well. Being produced is the opposite of the predicate being not produced. 
and being impermanent, which is the opposite of the current logical reason being permanent, is the reverse reason cited in this three-part syllogism. I don't like this trimodal, blah, blah, blah. This understanding of the components of the argument should be extended to other similar formulations in the chart. Next page, uh, the three elements are presented for this uh, three-part syllogism. Take sound, it follows that it is not produced because it is permanent. So let's take a quick look at the chart on the next page. So on the part page of uh, top of 66, we have the subject of sound, the predicate is being not produced. Which is not how you'd put it in a sentence. You'd say sound is not produced because, and then the reason is being permanent. So the thesis sound is not produced is the thesis sound is not produced, and the reverse of the predicate is being produced, and the reverse reason is because it's impermanent. Let's see, dictionary definition of pervasion, the process of spreading through and being present or perceived everywhere and anywhere, or something like that, in every part. Thank you. Love the sound effects, too. Uh, let's see. Back to the prior page, last paragraph. When giving responses in the context of a debate, there are different... Uh, there we go. There are diff... <laughs> Morgan, I'm going to uh, mute you. Sounds like somebody's playing one of those things. Um... When giving a response in the context of a debate, there are different forms corresponding to the components of the statement in general. There are two responses corresponding to the predicate component of the statement. Either you say, I agree, which means yes, or you say why, which implies no. So he's veering off the, the real presentation on logical reasoning into how it works in a debate, how it's used in a debate. And the reason he's doing that is because debate is a common way of learning this stuff because it's a very helpful way to learn it and become really um, facile in, in knowing it as opposed to just like reading it in a book and then going on to five zillion other topics. But And so we've all seen the monks debating. Corresponding to the reason component of the statement, there are two possible responses. The reason is not established unestablished, and there is no logical pervasion. It's inconclusive. So a statement could be faulty in two ways. It could either be um, not established, the reason is not viable or, or uh, agreeable or provable, or there's just not a pervasion, which we just went through. Thus, there are four options in total, because there's two for each way. This said, there are also numerous other responses, such as, what time is dinner? Um, yeah. There is a, that was a joke, by the way. There is a contrary pervasion, or I have doubt about this, and so on. Now, among these types of responses, so this, this whole debate thing is not that important, but... Um, So I'm going to skip through this and let's look at the chart on 67. Here is a chart of responses to questions when engaged in Tibet, in 
in Tibet, in debate, I mean. I agree, one, this means accepting it. Two, why this indicates that one does not accept and that the statement requires further proof. And both of these address the relationship between that subject, which is the basis of the dispute, and the predicate. So the thesis, these address the thesis, as opposed to the logical reasoning. And remember, there's three parts to the syllogism. Subject, whatever the hell you're talking about, and then predicate, what you're saying about it, and then the reason, the logical reason of why you're saying that. Three, the reason is not established. This means that one doesn't accept that the stated subject concurs with the stated reason. Um, not helpful to go through these. Basically, there's two ways that a syllogism can be faulty. Since you have these three parts, you have the subject, the what the predicate, what you're saying about that subject, and then the reason. Either the uh, reason can be a faulty reason or it cannot apply to either the subject or the predicate. So it can either be faulty or erroneous or it can be inapplicable. In the early Buddhist, Indian Buddhist texts, however, four types of response um, on page 68. Let's give his. Let's go through his example after the quote from Vasubandhu, who says, "Stated categorically through qualifying, through questioning, through remaining silent." Those are the three uh, ways to respond in a debate. To give examples with regard to the question, "Are all material things impermanent?" The categorical response, "Yes," is an example of the first type a possible response to the question, are all impermanent entities material? The qualified response, those with obstructive spatial properties are material, but those with the nature of inner experience are not as an example of the second type, which is questioning, not agreeing with the statement, because the statement is not, um, is not a, there's not a pervasion Impermanent uh, phenomena do, do include material phenomena, but there's other types of impermanent phenomena, such as what they're calling here inner phenomena, which are mental events. So it's correct for that material phenomena are impermanent, but not all impermanent phenomena are material. So it doesn't go both ways. The pervasion is incomplete. Um, to ask, the, the, sorry, to the question, is this tree tall or short? One could respond by asking a question in relation to what do you ask that? And this seems like a really silly question, but this sort of qualifying type of interchange is actually more common than you would think. Um, if the questioner points to a short tree and says in relation, a shorter tree says in relation to that tree, one says it's tall. If it points to a taller one, one says it's short. 
there are also certain contexts where for a specific purpose and reason one may need to respond by adopting silence. And this is an example of the fourth type of response. One extremely vital method of engaging in comprehensive analysis of a given topic, um, employing the logical reasoning in the collective topics, is the system of discerning conceptual relationships in terms of the trilemma, which is the three-part uh, way of classifying things, and the tetralemma, which is a four-part way of classifying things, of uh, the relationships between phenomena. And this is what uh, we did early on with the Venn diagrams. It's looked at the possible relationships. So on that remaining phenomena. silent, that means when I say it depends and I just don't say anything, that's being silent? Well, you, you, you wouldn't even say it depends. You would just sort of say your whole statement just does not make any sense. Okay. It, the it depends would be more the second type. Yes. Oh, that's the second type. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so here's, here's a sort of com complicated technical presentation of the Venn diagrams. Um, the third... The trilemma, the second to last paragraph on page 68, there are three possibilities regarding the difference between, so he gives an example, a person and a Tibetan. One is a Tibetan child, as an example, as an instance, is both a person and a Tibetan. So that's the first possibility, that um, they're ident they are... Um, overlapping. An Indian is a person but not a Tibetan, which is the second possibility. And and this is the set of um, phenomena that are outside of the uh, overlapping portion of the Venn diagram. Let me show, show the Venn diagram. Okay, so it's, we're talking about this as an example. And a, on the left hand, P is a person, it's all persons. And this one on the right is all Tibetans. So a Tibetan child is both a person and a Tibetan. An Indian is a person, but not a Tibetan. And a jar it's neither of the two jars outside of the whole deal, right? Okay, then there's four possibilities between a carpenter and a Tibetan. So we have carpenters and Tibetans. A Tibetan carpenter is both in the middle. A Tibetan and a carpenter. An Indian carpenter is a carpenter but not a Tibetan. And uh, a Tibetan child is the latter but not the former. Is a Tibetan but not a carpenter, and a pillar is neither of them. So that's the four possibilities. So I have a, a question. Why do they, in this one, they go to a pillar, why don't they just say like a Chinese economist? You know, is it, it's like, I mean, why do they jump out of the whole realm of, in this case, you know, like you... They're, they're, uh, they're pressing the point. It just that, seems kind of that it could be any other phenomena is out of the equation, and that's 
that's represented by all the space outside. And that includes Chinese economists and jars and unicorns. Right. It just seems like it's sort of a <clears throat> thing to jump totally out of the, uh, or, yeah. Point taken. So a Chinese Contr economist is still a person. Right. That was so in the in this example before where we had persons and uh, um, I think I described this one. I was talking about the tetralemma yeah. one. Yeah, it's not the not the trial one. I, it was yeah, yeah, the carpenters and and Tibetans. The other one had people and carpenters or something or economists. <laughs> anyway, uh, contradiction or mutually exclusive phenomena refer to distinct entities that share no common locus. That's these guys. These are contradictory phenomena, uh, such as the pair, a horse and an ox, or white and red, permanent and impermanent. These pairs of combinations, no example can be found, no phenomena in the world that is both of those. Equivalents are mutually inclusive, and that's this, where they're totally the same are those that not only have a common locus but also possess eight modes of pervasion and he goes through the eight modes which i won't go through but um th this is an example of um how these relationships are used to strengthen our understanding of the um aspects of the phenomena of our world so <clears throat> the rest of the um of the material in this course and in this book is going through the different aspects of the phenomenal world or the natural world and how we perceive it and part of the way of uh, getting a deeper understanding of them is to use this way of uh, comparing the relationships between different classes or types of phenomena um, which is turns out to be way more complicated than you would think I wish I had some handy examples with me, but I don't. I'll try for next time. Um, and, so yes, an, an interesting thing about the example of the tetralemma here is that usually when it's spoken of, and maybe this is just because we've been doing so much Nagarjuna recently, um, it's like the, the two options are mutually exclusive, right? So it's like, like it's like this is true it's this is true it's false it's both true and false or it's neither true and false that's that's normally how we've been looking at the tetralemma so that I, I found that example really interesting and i, I kind of had to like take it apart and put it back together to figure out how it related to how we have been using it uh, in the context of nagarjuna yeah it's like a difference it's sort of it's sort of a different scheme but it has a similar flavor to it yeah. So are we trying to establish if things are thoroughly established, partly established? I mean, I'm trying to grasp we're, the goal. We're, try, we're trying to understand how things are either established or not established. Or in not what established. way? In what way we can understand whether whether uh, our understanding of things is accurate or not? Basically, we're trying to get to an accurate understanding of our world and then our mind and the way our mind understands our world so maybe more so to can... overcome self-deception that's the ultimate goal yes so we we're trying to understand the the true nature of the phenomena and the true nature of our perception or cognition of phenomena 
And based on that, we're trying to then refine our actual uh, experience of cognition of phenomena. So the last paragraph there in brief, this tradition of logic of the collected topics invented by Chapachiki saying is an excellent method for opening wide the doors of critical reasoning, etc., etc. Okay, so that was a brief overview of that very difficult, complicated topic. Don't let that worry you or deter you, because uh, we're now going to spend like a long time building up all the elements of knowledge that then this type of reasoning will be used, um, combined with, at a later date. So let's jump into the next section, which is the knowable objects. And here we get into more of the traditional presentation of the collected topics material, whereas this first chapter was like a little review of all of the different primers, well, a few of them. Defining the physical, setting aside differences among Buddhist schools, the picture of the natural world presented in their text is something like the following. The world, or at least the human experience of it, has two primary components, matter and consciousness. A third component, non-associated conditioning factors, qualifies material and mental phenomena. This Buddhist differentiation of the conditioned world into three classes is strikingly similar to what Karl Popper refers to as the three worlds physical objects, subjective experience, and statements in themselves. Buddhists have, in addition, the further category of the unconditioned, which is essentially the, essentially the absence or negation of conditioned phenomena. The first task, then, for Buddhist theorists is to clearly define what is meant when something is said to be physical or mental. And this is so much fun. I hope you enjoyed the, the definition or the description of uh, materiality, which actually in the reading for next week gets even better. But And then they say consciousness is, will be defined in volume two. In the very early sources, what is material is described simply as comprising the four great natural elements, the Mahabhutas and the things derived from such elements. The earth element performs the function of supporting the water cohesion, the fire maturation, and the wind uh, extension. The wind performs the function of extension. <laughs> I like that. It's like an extension cord. Apart from this, one sees little in the earliest text in the way of rigorous definition of what matter is. What the matter, what's the matter with them? They are great, Maha, in that they are found in all matter, and they are characterized as elements, Buddha, for they are the ultimate constituents of everything within the physical world. Since this concept of the great elements comes to be closely connected with Buddhist atomic theory, I shall discuss the evolution of this concept below in my introduction to part three, which investigates Buddhist theories of subtle particles. So this is, uh, by the way, a little introduction to this section by the editor who is Tupin Jinpa. Right. Uh, over time, sorry, I just lost my place. Over time, a more systematic approach emerged in defining matter in terms of four distinctive characteristics, that which accumulates it grows. 
uh, that which occupies space. What a good way of defining matter, that which occupies space, that which is visible, and that which can be modified through contact. It's malleable. Those fe these features of matter came to be narrowed further to two main characteristics. Resistance. You can't pass through matter without special powers or permission. And visibility. Now, visibility didn't last long, with the former becoming the primary. Resistance. Matter is resistance. It resists other phenomena. Um, Vasubandhu, for example, states that matter is characterized by resistance because it hinders the arising of another thing in its own location. <laughs> you can't have two things in the same place at the same time. Here in part two, the defining features of matter drawn from authoritative Abhidharma sources are presented as length, at length rather, and, and examined. A key problem in the early Buddhist attempt to define matter lies in the tension between trying to capture simultaneously the phenomenological character of material entities, their resistance and their visibility, their, the way they appear, and their ontological existence in terms of their atomic state uh, constituents. Early Abhidharmakas wished to define matter to include the objects conceived as forms during meditation. Um, for they occupy space in the mind and hinder other things from arising in that space. That's pretty creative, don't you think? <laughs> woo, woo, woo. <laughs> Mind space. Yeah, mind space. Like I think of a thing in my mind and it occupies space in my mind. I can't think of something else in that space. Uh, other Buddhist thinkers, such as the Sautrantikas, reject this, defining matters consisting of anatomically composed things. For these later thinkers, the material world is composed of the objects of the five senses, that is, visible form, etc. Um as well as the five sense organs and the four great elements which make up all the previous phenomena. Right? So you have five objects, five organs is ten, and then you have the four great elements. So we're at fourteen. Um, if I did that right. Uh, let's see. For later thinkers, uh, I, I missed something. The five sense organs defined not as the gross organ, but as some kind of refined inner form. Right? We have this idea of subtle matter, that the visual sense consciousness is subtle matter that resides somewhere in the eye, but it's not the equivalent of the physical eye. And same with the other organs. They reject the materiality of the so-called mental object form, which included the objects of meditative states, as well as Sarvastivada. Now, Sarvastivadins are the earlier Buddhist school, similar to Vaibhashikas, and they believe that everything possible exists. Everything you can think of basically exists. Um, 
So the Sautrantikas reject the materiality of the so-called mental object forms, which include the objects of meditative states, as well as the Sarvastivada Abhidharma's non-revelatory or non-indicative form, a special category of form that is created to entice you to wonder what it is. I changed that. Um, a special category form that is not characterized by resistance. It's like they come up with a rule for what form is, and then they make a type of form that doesn't conform to the rule. It's brilliant, isn't it? It requires a sense of humor. Okay. For Sautrantikas, these so-called forms are nothing but constructs of the mind and have no physical reality. They're like, okay, enough of the jokes. Let's get real. In any case, the status of objects known as Kritsnayatana, Kasinas in Pali, the little emblems that you meditate upon when you do absorption meditation, and then you perceive them internally, perceived in advanced meditative state. So the image becomes of the colors or the elements becomes internalized and you perceive them internally. Um, but the perception of them in advanced meditative states, which are thought to have been real material effects, pose a daunting challenge to the early Buddhist theorists, with some broadening their definition of the physical to accommodate these and others rejecting their materiality altogether. So these mental object forms are these uh, are the mental images of the uh, elements and the colors that are used in absorption meditation. And these these people were doing a lot of absorption meditation and experiencing these phenomena in a way that made them feel like they were actually like phenomena as opposed to mental, just for mental concepts, basically. And so they had to like fiddle around with their whole system to, to fit them in. Was it, I'm just curious because it says, which are thought to have material effects, meaning the their experience, their meditation experience. Yeah, here's the deal. They Once you perfect the, once you achieve the fourth jhana state, the fourth jhana with one of the elements, you did that last week, good. <laughs> like, for example, earth. Once you perfect the, the absorption of earth, you can then uh, create earth where there's water and walk across water. You can create like, like most you can create earth in the sky and you can walk in the sky. You know, and these this is how the miracles that are recorded in the Buddhist tradition were accomplished. They were accomplished by people who had accomplished the absorption states and they would go into absorption and they would create that form. And you know, so they're like well, you can actually walk on it or swim in it. You know, if you create water in the middle of the ground, they were actually able to dive in and swim. So it's like, how does that happen? It must be real form. So that's how they tried to grapple with it. But actually, but, sorry, the, the, the cause of that was these imagined objects, right? And that's what they were. It became very real. They could, they could manifest them. The result was manifesting Earth or all these other crazy things, right? So I guess I was just curious as to why they thought the cause had to be material because it created a material result. Well, they they only they could experience the result. 
only oh. the person who, ex or like they could walk on the water, but you couldn't. Uh, right. I couldn't, nor could I see the ground that they were walking on. Uh, to me, it would look like they're walking on water, just like Jesus. Uh-huh. But to them, it looks and feels and tastes like dirt. Anyway, so... <laughs> conditioning factors. That little weird twist. <laughs> it's an oddity for sure, you know, and uh, it helps if you don't believe in those things. It simplifies things tremendously. Simplifies your world. As observed above, Buddhist theorists postulate in addition to matter and consciousness, an important third category of conditioned phenomena. Although it was primarily the early Sarvastava and i.e. Vaibhashika school that it advocated a distinct category of non-associated conditioning factors or non-associated formative factors. So these are alternate translations for the same thing as it is rendered in this volume, with their own intrinsic reality, they need to recognize some conditioning factors that are neither material nor mental states seem to be broadly shared by most Buddhist schools. They are non-associated in that they belong neither to the category of matter nor to the category of consciousness. They are conditioning factors because like matter and consciousness, they have the capacity to act as conditions for the arising of experience. As we can see, the Sarvastavada school postulates 14 of these non-associated formative factors, each defined in terms of their unique functions. Possession, for instance, is a factor that makes it possible for one to acquire and maintain an attainment, such as getting fat, such as being um, irritating. It's like you work very hard at, at becoming irritating over a period of time, and then it doesn't disappear when you wake up the next day. You're still irritating. That That's what they mean by um, wherever the hell I was, maintaining attainment. Um, homogeneity provides a basis for shared characteristics within a group of sentient beings and so on. Asangas, Abhidharma Samuchaya. So he also wrote a book on Abhidharma and uh, the, the brothers competing with each other. And the Tibetans called his the higher Abhidharma text and Vasubandhu's was the lower. No offense, guys. Adds nine more to the list, making 23. The attribution of a specific activity to a particular factor, as well as how many such factors should be on the list, became a matter of debate and controversy among Buddhist theorists. These guys had nothing else to do. <laughs> Um, while the Sarvastivans conceived these dissociated forces to possess intrinsic and substantial realities of their own, a song explicitly speaks of them as constructs that have reality only in name and thought. So there's a big distinction between the, the, the two early schools, Sarvastivadins, Vaibhashikas, slash Vaibhashikas, believed that the non-associated formative factors were actual phenomena, actual things that could perform functions. And the Sangha uh, begins the trend of the South, is part of the trend of the Sautrantikas, which say that they're not actual functioning phenomena. They're just descriptions by concept. They have reality only in name and thought. Later Buddhist theorists are also clear in maintaining that the list 
whether 14 or 23 or whatever, should not be treated as exhaustive. These differences aside, having a category of conditioned things distinct from matter-mind helps even the critics of Sarvastivada and Abhidharma, such as the Sautronic. It's a handy thing. It's like a, it's like a, um, a helpful thing to recognize that there's factors or forces that um, are at play between these much more um, observable phenomena of matter and mind. It seems like they spend pages and pages saying they have a catch-all category for the things that don't fit. I mean, it's good that they have it, but it, 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 you know, it's funny how they go on and on about what is essentially a, because otherwise you try to shoehorn everything into the two categories and they don't fit and then you have all sorts of weird problems. So they created this, you know, essentially. Yes, it gives them a way to speak about the ontological status of such entities as time and persons, as well as characteristics of conditional phenomena like arising and body and cessation. For these theorists, then the category of non-associated conditioning factors becomes equivalent to the class of phenomena referred to referred to as prajnapti sats, those that are real only in name and thought. So prajnapti is uh has a similar root as prajna but in this case it's not like particularly a positive thing it's uh sort of conceptual thought prajnapti that which is sort of manipulated by understanding or thinking about it on the rationale for positing this distinct category of existence a contemporary researcher Colette Cox writes, given the diversity of activities explained and doctrinal constraints satisfied, <laughs> the category of associative dissociated forces, another translation of the same animal, non-associated formative factors, dissociated forces appears to be a derivative category with no single integrating principle. Instead, it's a miscellany containing functionally unrelated factors unified only by their successful operation, demanding their separation from both form and thought. In other words, categories best understood as defined primarily in terms of things that do not fit into the other two categories from perspective of the history of ideas. Well, one appreciates from the Sarvastavada's sustained attempt to systematize the category of non-associated factors, including its subsequent expansion, is the need early Buddhist thinkers had for a comprehensive account of the world. What is that? One that is not just composed of static objects, material or mental, but is dynamic with a complex causal activity. So, yes, a very long-winded explanation. Causality, as in contemporary science, one of the most important explanatory principles in Buddhist exploration of reality is the law of causality. Whether it's the framework of Four Noble Truths or dependent origination, the principle of causality lies at the heart of the Buddhist worldview, from the natural world to the process of mental purification. A well-known statement attributed to the Buddha reads, and this is his most famous statement of interdependent origination, when this exists, that exists. From the arising of this, that arises, which encapsulates the principle of dependent origination, Pratitya Samudpada, and explicitly presents causation in terms of conditionedness. This conditionedness is an ubiquitous phrase in Buddhist text tantamount to a slogan, especially to draw a contrast with those who explain the evolution of the cosmos in terms of a transcendental force such as God. 
In explaining the causal process inherent in the rise of things, we see a distinction between drawn between two crucial terms, causes on the one hand and conditions on the other. When distinguished, causes is primary, while conditions are complementary in that they help the cause produce its effect. To give an example popular in Buddhist sources, the rising of a rice sprout. The rice sprout is the cause, while factors such as soil, moisture, warmth, and the farmer's efforts are conditions. In some contexts, uh, so he shifts and uses the Sanskrit for cause and condition. Hetu is cause and pratyaya is conditioned. In some cases, they're used interchangeably, and, and it's very confusing in some cases where cause and conditions are just mixed up thus making them equivalent. When used in that way, a distinction is drawn between what is a primary, a substantial cause, and what is a supportive cause. Uh, sorry, a co cooperative cause, with the former being unique, that is having one-to-one -one relation to a given effect, while those in the latter category are shared in common with other effects. In other words, a cooperative cause can have multiple effects. So now we shift from ontology, like what are phenomena, in those three, and they're divided into those three classes. And now we're, we're shifting to how do phenomena interact? How do they function, i.e. through causes and conditions? So how can we describe them in a way that uh, makes sense? In the early Buddhist scriptures, four conditions are proposed for the arising of <coughs> a perceptual event. So this is the arising of a, uh, a perception or cognition, such as visual the causal condition, all the factors that are co-existent and concomitant with the perception itself, such as the object of the visual consciousness, a color, the objective condition, um, let's see, oh, sorry, the uh, causal condition is, uh, well, let me, let me read the second one, the objective condition is the External object and the dominant condition is the sense faculty. Dominant condition is the sense faculty. And the immediately preceding condition is the preceding moment of consciousness. So to, to run through that, this is sort of key, getting these four down, because we'll see these terms over and over again of these four. So the objective condition, number two, is the, ob is the external object. So let's say... Uh, we're looking at a shrine box, and it has yellow satin on it. And so the causal condition is the light that reflects off the shrine box into the eyeball that's directed in its way and has the capacity for visual cognition because it's not impaired. And... Um, the dominant condition is the sensory faculty, which is the subtle matter of visual consciousness that resides in the in the eye, the physical eye. And the immediately preceding condition is the preceding moment of consciousness. Every moment of consciousness arises from the last moment of consciousness. It doesn't arise out of thin air. You can't have like an object and the eye consciousness and suddenly oh, there's consciousness. There needs to have been a stream of consciousness beforehand. Well, and, and that's our experience. There's just this ongoing stream of one type of consciousness or another. So the, uh, the immediately preceding cognition or consciousness 
uh, or condition in this case might have been um, are the candles lit so you look over at the shrine right so are the candles lit is a, involves which consciousness the sixth consciousness a thought right so that activates our uh, attempt to experience a visual cognition by looking at the shrine Later thinkers, such as the Sautrantic, has modified this and understood the first condition to be, in fact, the general category where the many three is specific subclasses. They explain the effect of the three conditions on the basis of the three specific features of the perceptual experience, such as the perception of a flower, for example, that the perception possesses the form of a flower and its content is the imprint of the objective condition. And that's... Um, a fancy way of saying a flower looks like a flower that the perceptual process is the form of a flower as its content is the imprint of the objective condition so a flower produces the imprint of a flower it doesn't produce the imprint of an elephant on your visual consciousness strangely enough um, Where the hell was that? The, that the perception possesses the form of a flower as its content is the imprint of the objective condition, that it is visual as opposed to some other sensory experience as the imprint of the dominant condition. So dominant, you know, it's like it's like I'm in the realm of vision. That's the dominant situation, right? The objective condition is the object, and the causal condition is these things coming together, and that's all happens on the basis of something else happening having happened in my mind a moment before. Try to give you a way of easily remembering these things. And that the perception is subjective experience is the imprint of the immediately preceding condition. The end of that chapter, the Sarvastivada school developed the doctrine of the four conditions into its theory of six causes, and I won't go in detail through this. The efficient, the coexistent, homogeneous, concomitant, and omnipresent, and fruit. Fruitional. So they just came up with a slightly different scheme just to make things complicated, so I'll skip this. On the next page, an important related issue is the distinction between coincidence and causation. An example of mere coincidence often cited is the case where a coconut falls down from a tree the very moment a crow lands on, its, uh, on the tree. What is required to establish causality is more than mere coincidence. There needs to be an invariable relation that's such that if X, then Y, you know. So every time a crow lands on a tree, a coconut falls. In Dharma Kirti's language, this invariability is due to a necessary relationship. So we have the, the logical terms of necessary and sufficient, right? Uh, between cause and effect. In brief, a cause must be temporally antecedent. It must go before the result. It must be an agent of the change affected. And it, uh, the arising of a given effect must be related to it invariably. Furthermore, all conditioned things are causally efficacious. That is, they're capable of producing effects. I'll skip the part about uh, Western thought. Reality or mental construct. The final section of part two 
relates to a host of constructs central to Buddhist systematic approach to def defining and describing what is real. This includes the concepts associated with definition itself, notions of identity and difference. So this is all that complicated stuff. Um, so in the middle of this paragraph, there's a sentence that start, uh, let's see towards the middle says Buddhist thinkers reject the objective reality of these categories um, of universals and so forth and recognize them as constructs of the mind albeit important ones they're not totally non-existent like the horn of a rabbit or a flower growing in the sky, nor do they have the robust reality of matter and mental states. In what sense then can they be said to exist at all? Do these constructs of, and these are the constructs, I'm sorry, I should have not have skipped them up above. The second sentence, these include the concepts associated with definition itself, notions of identity, difference, universals, particular substance, and so forth back down the middle of the paragraph do these constructs based on binary conceptual distinctions belong to the category of non-associated conditioning factors so another like seemingly not that important um distinction or categorization but later on it turns out to be a very helpful way of understanding how cognition works so skipping to the next paragraph, uh, actually at the very last sentence of that paragraph, in brief, in brief they belong to um, they belong to the category of the unconditioned, because these are not actual phenomena; they're sort of conceptual phenomena, so they're unconditioned. One point. Final point needs clarification in connection with part two of the book. This has to do with the way in which the Sanskrit terms. No, let me skip that. That's not that helpful. And the rest of this section I'm going to skip because the, we need to go through this last part in detail, which starts in a couple of pages forward on page 83. So we enter into this into uh, section four phenomena in general. Earlier we spoke of how prior Buddhist thinkers employed different systems of classification when establishing their presentations. Reality each possesses unique structures within which the subject matter may be made more accessible to the minds of readers here in this compendium we take the best features of those systems of codification we, but we develop our presentation principally with the aim of making the subject matter accessible to contemporary readers with us organize the subject matter of the two volumes by five major themes and we've seen this in the introduction noble objects cognize in mind how the mind engages them the reasons, or sorry, the means by which the mind ascertains its objects, and then this oddity called the person. The essential natures of specific phenomena are discussed in the presentation of noble objects. This book, the nature and classification of mental phenomena are characterized by subjective experience are discussed in the presentation of the cognizing mind, which is next in the section on how the mind engages its, its objects, topics such as whether the mind engages it 
its objects by way of elimination or affirmation, and what mind possesses what aspects of those objects and so on are addressed. The section on the means by which the mind ascertains objects pres presents the following topics, the four principles of reasoning, which we saw earlier, as well as repudiation, proof statements, formal reasoning, and the ancillary topic of the stages of training of the mind. There's a section on Shamatha Vipassana. And the final section on the person who is the perceiver of objects, the views of the Buddhist Nambada schools of India on the identity of the person are presented. So that's a little preview of what comes next. And on the presentation of knowable objects, the next page, in general, existence and non-existence. So these three pages, two, two pages here are the crooks. On the presentation of knowable objects in general, existence and non-existence are defined on the basis of whether something is established by valid cognition. So an existent phenomena is the object of valid cognition, and a non-existent phenomena is not the object of valid cognition. Or, and can never be. If something is established by valid cognition, it must be posited as existent. And if it is not established by valid cognition, it must be posited as non-existent. There's two types of valid cognition. There's direct valid cognition, which is non-conceptual cognition to our senses. And then there's conceptual cognition performed by inferential logical reasoning, inference inferential reasoning so those two those are the two types of valid cognition a vase for example exists since it is established by valid cognition whereas the horn of a rabbit does not exist since it is not established by valid cognition thus the following is stated in dharmakirti's exposition of valid cognition pramanavarti in this regard those fit to be observed exist Things that are fit to be observed exist. Others that are not observed don't exist. If you can't observe them, they don't freaking exist. So the meaning of existence is that which is observed by valid cognition. Then we have a list of synonyms, synonymous terms that have different definitions, but basically all mean this or, or refer to the same uh, group of phenomena existent phenomena existent established basis object knowable object ascertainable object and phenomena are equivalent with respect to their reference they all refer to existing phenomena so existent established basis object so if we say object that means that it's an existent phenomena it's an, an object of valid cognition is an existent phenomena it's knowable it exists. Is it ascertainable? It exists. And phenomena, is it a phenomenon? It exists. That which is established by valid cognition. So then they provide the definition of each one of these. But that which is established by valid cognition is the uh, definition of an established base basis. An established basis is that which is established by valid cognition. So when you look at a yellow shrine box, what is the established base that's established by valid cognition? It's the color yellow. And just the color yellow. Capiche? 
There's no such thing as a shrine box. Right? Just the color yellow is the object of your visual consciousness. The rest is extrapolation through conceptual uh, structured or conceptually structured world. So the, the object of valid cognition, when you look at a yellow shrine, is the color yellow. There's nothing and else that's validly established. Also? Say again? Isn't the shape also? Some systems say there's the shape also, but others say it's just color in a certain form. Uh, Chris? In the previous paragraph, it says that a vase is established by valid cognition. Right, but not visual valid cognition. Thank you. That's a very good example. So which valid cognition is the vase established by? Inference? Mental cognition? Yeah, it's actually established by inference. By And what is the basis for the inference? Mental cognition. Of? Visual cognition. Of either visual cognition of the vase and its color and shape or um, touching it. Auditory cognition when you knock it over up here and it break exactly things. Like I guess that. I guess it doesn't exist anymore at that point. <laughs> That's right. We we've proven it exists as it no longer exists. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. Is that valid cognition of a vase if it's broken? Yes, it's impermanent. <laughs> but it's it's proven that it's a broken vase. But by inference, it proves that it was a vase. <laughs> Anyway, um, and yellow. Yeah, what about it? Well, blue, it's a color. Green. Yeah, I thought it was okay. Red it could have been a blue vase. Color? I thought it was yellow. I thought it was the yellow vase we were talking about. I mean, how many colors? There's a certain set of colors. We'll get to them. I can't remember. And then okay. there, there's a whole. It's like. It's so, the colors is the most fun because it's really bizarre. <laughs> they have like colors and then non, then they have non colors <laughs> that are, I think, like gray and I don't know, black or something or non colors. <laughs> and then there's one, one color is called uh, the color of clouds. Anyway, <laughs> we'll get to that. It's, it's, that's, that's the, uh, that's the exciting part of the book. <laughs> something to look forward to um that which is cognized by awareness is the definition of an object what's the definition of an object that which is cognized by awareness that which is fit to be an object of awareness is the definition of a noble object what is the definition of a noble object a noble object is that which is fit to be an object of awareness. Now you'll see we've encountered this idea of fit a couple of times now. We encountered a little bit in the definition of matter, that which is fit to be matter. And now we're encountering it and uh, that which is fit to be an object of awareness. And fit is not really a technical term, but it's sort of being used as a technical term because there's no, it's like a placeholder. It's like there's no other way to describe the situation other than that which normally uh, can can i it. kind of does it mean that which possesses the attributes of you know what i mean that's a more uh, more f complete way of describing it yes fit would be just shorthand but that's good that's helpful uh let's see 
And that which is comprehended by valid cognition is the definition of an ascertainable object. <clears throat> so you ascertain something with your mind and it's uh, comprehended by valid cognition. You see the yellow shrine or vase or whatever color on those. That which retains its nature is, ah, is posited as the definition of a phenomenon or a dharma. That which retains its own nature is the definition of a phenomenon. With respect to knowable objects, as mentioned earlier, there, there are numerous Can, systems. So I'm, I hate to bother you. Can you explain <laughs> what they mean by that which retains its nature? I mean, just... Yeah, yeah, they're they're gonna actually do it a little bit, but it it uh, uh, f- phenomena have the habit of being what they are every moment until they're interrupted by something else. So that which retains its own nature, like the vase that you can put the flowers in until it gets broken, and then you can't put the flowers in it. That's right. So the vase. Remains to be remains a vase until it's broken, until something intervenes. But it has the nature of being what it is through time, which is not, you know, it's not like a permanent phenomenon. It's it's uh, radically impermanent. But it's each moment of the vase is the direct cause of the next moment of the vase. So it's a continuum. And These gurus want to have it both ways. They do. <laughs> They do in very many situations. We'll come across this this uh, sort of have it both ways. But this is like, where we get into that whole all that svabhava stuff that we were looking at before, right? Yeah, and you, you know, and, and as you go through this system, you'll you'll begin to see more and more clearly. Oh, these are the loopholes that Nagarjuna is just like driving a, a sledgehammer into, or whatever, or a wedge into. So, so since you know this is being presented in a Tibetan context where you know Madhyamaka is kind of reign supreme, is there just kind of like an asterisk attached to everything we're talking about here? Of you know, like yes, but you know, like this is all yes, but this is all relative truth. There, there is. Uh, however, it's it's not that sort of dismissive in that we're acknowledging that every one of us lives moment to moment in the in the belief system that things are real until we're enlightened and so okay let's describe how this so-called real world that we believe in habitually believe in or um unconsciously or subconsciously believe in how does how do we believe it actually exists and functions and manifests but yes yes i was thinking like my thought of the vase doesn't persist I could just turn away and the thought's gone. But the vase is still over there persisting. It's is a different vase. Difference? It's a different vase, but yes. Is that the difference between what and one? Explaining <laughs> what persists and what doesn't persist. My thought doesn't persist, but the vase does. So it's an ascertainable object. <laughs> right <laughs> well that's a, that's a you know so a thought a thought is what is the thought it's a, a th- maybe we'll come back to this a thought is one of the most difficult things to classify <laughs> but let's come back to that 
Um, with respect to noble objects, as mentioned earlier, there are numerous systems, 18 dots, blah, blah, blah. However, when all of these are classified in terms of their essential nature, they fall into two categories, those that are produced by cause and conditions and subject to change, and those that are not. The first kind is characterized as impermanent or conditioned phenomena, whereas the second type is permanent or unconditioned phenomena. Those belonging to the first category are referred to as functional things, since they perform the function of generating their results. Right? <laughs> another, another one of those, fit to be tied. They perform the function of generating their result. Good little buggers, they do their, they do their work. Um, why do I keep losing my place? Um, the first kind is characterized uh, functional things. They do their generating their result. They are called products since they arise from their causes and conditions. Products are results. They are called conditioned phenomena since they are produced from the aggregation and convergence of causes and conditions, and they're, caused, they're called impermanent, since they are states that are subject to disintegration moment by moment. Thus, functional thing, these, this is the list of synonyms, the next category of existence. Earlier, we went through what existence is and its synonyms and the definitions of the synonyms, and now we're going through functional thing. And remember, uh, existent phenomena include things and non-things. We just went through that in the shape of uh, conditioned and unconditioned phenomena. And so we have function on the top of 83. That's functional thing is synonymous with product, is synonymous with conditioned phenomena, and then permanent. They're all equivalent with respect to their reference which is a technical little way of saying with, re with respect to what they are referring to, what they're trying to describe with the term. That which is capable of function is the definition of a functional thing. <laughs> that which has arisen is the definition of a product. That which is fit to arise, <laughs> cease, and endure is the definition of a conditioned phenomena. And that which is momentary is the definition of impermanent. If the category of conditioned or permanent phenomena is further differentiated, it can be classified in terms of three types. Material phenomena that categorizes obstructive. God damn it, they're always in the way. Such as what can be seen by the eyes or touched by the hand. Two, those characterized as consciousness, which are non-physical and constitute internal subjective experience alone. And three, factors that are neither matter nor consciousness, but whose ground of imputation is either material or mental phenomena, such as time. So here we have a, a, a description of these three categories of phenomena that we saw earlier tonight and many other times of matter, mind, and non-associated formations, but they're defined in a little bit more technical way, which is really helpful. Third one was, just to repeat that one, factor that is, that are factors that are neither matter nor consciousness, but whose ground of imputation, the ground of imputation is another way of saying the basis of imputation. And the basis or ground of imputation is that which we can perceive or cognize through valid cognition and upon which we then extrapolate other things, which in this case are not 
functioning things according to the Satrantika tradition. The categorization of conditioned phenomena to these three classes remained the standard approach among classical Buddhist thinkers. I said Sautrantika, sorry, among Madhyamakas. These are not, and Chittamatras. The higher schools do not consider the non-associated formations to be actual phenomena in that they don't, they're not productive, they're not functioning. But this school holds the non-associated formations to be uh, phenomena. They keep them in the class of phenomena, but they say uh, they're ground of imputation. They're imputations. They say right there. So there's this contradiction in their system, but they live with it. They can deal with contradiction. The categorization of conditioned phenomena of these three classes remain a standard approach. <clears throat> Next and last paragraph phenomena that are not produced by causes and conditions that are not subject to change are designated as non-things. Since they do not perform the function of generating a result, they are unproduced since they are not generated by causes and conditions. They are unconditioned since for them the three features of arising, ceasing, and enduring are incompatible. And they are permanent since these are phenomena that do not transform instantaneously or from moment to moment. Terms such as these are used to describe unconditioned phenomena. Thus, non-thing. So we have these three categorizations tonight. We got phenomena, and then we have phenomena which are things, and phenomena which are non-things. And phenomena which are non-things have the following synonyms. Unproduced phenomena, unconditioned phenomena, and permanent are equivalent to non-thing with respect to their reference. Your reverence being devoid and here we have the definitions being devoid of the capacity to perform a function is the definition of non-thing not arisen is the definition of being unproduced and not fit fit to cease arise cease sorry arise cease and abide or abide is definition of unconditioned phenomena and being both a phenomena as well as being not momentary is the definition of a permanent entity permanent phenomena are of two types eternal permanent phenomena and occasional permanent phenomena. Unconditioned space for existence is posited as an example of an eternal permanent phenomena since it is permanent, a permanent phenomena that exists forever throughout all time. And this is another anomaly of the Savitrantika systems that they didn't really believe in space, but they're inheriting it from the Sarvastivadin slash Vaibhashikas and sort of going along with it in their classificatory system, upon which then they're going to uh, inflict the subtleties of analysis and, and uh, come up with some conclusions. But... Uh, let's see. In contrast, the space inside a vase, for example, is posited as an occasional permanent phenomenon since it exists only when the vase exists and ceases to exist when Chris pushes it over and it breaks. Thank you very much, Chris. So, um, given our relationships, just real quick. Um, our, our uh, 
things and non-things. How do they relate to each other? Which one of these diagrams describes the relationship between things and non-things? Are they the same? At the bottom, the, the first contestant says, at the bottom, here, number five, whatever is a, not, is a thing is necessarily not a non-thing, and whatever is a non-thing is necessarily not a thing. What's the relationship between non-thing and phenomena? Is that number three? Number three, non-things Whatever is a non-thing is necessarily a phenomena, but whatever is a phenomena is not necessarily a non-thing because there are phenomena called things that are not non-things, right? And so you have it, ladies and gentlemen, phenomena, things, and non-things, the first building blocks of reality in the Buddhist world. It's a little laborious, but I, I, I think you'll enjoy it. I keep saying that. I hope it's true. <laughs> It'll come to me when I reach that absorption phase. There you go. It'll be useful whether we enjoy it or not. There you go. Once you get it, it's, it's sort of enjoyable. It, it is enjoyable. Any comments, questions? Etc. Anything else? Do we do we not talk about Buddha nature yet? <laughs> wow, that's a good one. Is it a thing or a non-thing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, can we talk about Buddha nature yet? What is what is the relationship between Buddha nature and non-thing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, what is the relationship between Buddha nature and phenomena? Well, it's Buddha it's nature permanent, not, right? Yeah, it's not, it's not subject not to change. It's permanent and not produced. It's unconditioned. Unconditioned. So, what is the relationship between Buddha nature and non-thing? would be a subset it would be a subset of non-things right but a nature is one non-thing and there's many other non-things okay so it is a non-thing well in you know in many ways you know because it's non-conditioned and unchanging and so forth but, but then does it is it ascertained yeah can it be does ascertained it? by by cognition though that's kind of a different thing because i remember parts where we would read where it's not really graspable yeah, yeah. well non-things are not ascertainable so that's okay does it perform a function does it produce enlightenment or does it grow or change or well, wait i thought phenomena were ascertainable um did I screw that up? All phenomena are ascertainable by valid cognition. But does it endure? Does Buddha nature endure? Yes, established by valid cognition. So that would make it uh that would take it out of the category of non-things. I th or it would 
I, I missed something, but going I, back to Eric, say, uh, complete that one. Sorry, Jill. You were talking about. No, I was just saying that it, that Buddha, if Buddha nature endures, unconditioned phenomena has to have have the feature of being of not in. What am I trying to say? Of oh no, it has. Forget it. Never mind. Okay, I don't remember uh, what you were talking about, Eric. Uh, yeah, I you, think we you... agree that Buddha nature is enduring. It doesn't just arise and cease. But then I'm just wondering about the loophole of ascertainable by cognition, which is also a feature of phenomena. Yeah, yeah. Is it ascertainable by valid cognition? I've read places that seem to imply it's not something that can really be grasped, which sort of implies ascertainable by cognition. It's yeah, that's an interesting, uh, interesting point. Um, ascertainable by by valid cognition means that you could either perceive it with your senses which we know we can't or you could conclude that it that it's there from inferential cognition can we prove buddha nature by inference yes yeah but also what about a, what about direct yogic perception that's a yeah. That's a form of uh, non-conceptual direct cognition. So, does direct yogic perception cognize Buddha nature? Yes. That's what you're asking. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, no. I mean, is it, is it something that really only the the Buddhas actually can comprehend, and which would not therefore be an object of cognition? I thought we said it was a non-thing, not a thing. You said it's something. Uh, uh, it's a non-thing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's a non-thing that can be cognized by yes. the Buddhas. <laughs> Sorry for my lack of precision. Excuse me. I'm... <clears throat> oh, you know, so so uh, what you just did, Mary Beth, is great. You know, and it's a really cool example of like going from from the building blocks of a way of describing the world to like the world's most difficult thing to like, you know, fit in or categorize or you know, uh, include in the system. So that was cool. That was great. Thank you. You know, we. It's hard. It's very hard to conclude. What what kind of animal is it? You know, is it animal or plant or what? <laughs> but mineral. Mineral. That's right. Is it animal, plant, or mineral? It's definitely mineral. Well, in a way, it's asking if this whole setup is within the <laughs> dual system of subject object. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm yeah. gonna. But well, nature is such a hard one. I want to come back to something I was saying earlier because I corrected myself, and that is that it says that the features of enduring are incompatible with unconditioned phenomena. Right, but can you really, would you really say that Buddha nature endures? Well, that's what I, I don't know. <laughs> there's no, there's no thing there that endures. You know, un unconditioned phenomena are unchanging, but they're not enduring. They're not arising, enduring, and ceasing. You know, so unconditioned phenomena in general is a stretch. In what way are they phenomena? Yeah, it's permanent, <laughs> but 
enduring is something else. Yeah, that's 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 the the distinction. Thank you. Yeah. The enduring and uh, permanent, or uh, whatever permanent means, are different things. Mean different things, which is really helpful to point out. Thanks. Anyway, that's great. So uh, we'll do more of these examples as we go, because it's uh, that's what really helps you understand the system and sharpen the mind in uh, in its ultimate purpose of looking at our ignorance. So let's uh, do our dedication by this merit may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you very much. And, and have for, a wonderful thank you for sports fans, I saw a notification flash across my screen that the 60-second home run has been hit. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! That's huge! <laughs> Just in case anybody was interested in Aaron Judge's little record-breaking phenomena. Thanks, Cynthia. That was good, good info. Okay. So that's in one of the two leagues of baseball, but the other league seems to have done that more than more. Uh, I'm sorry, in the non-steroidal uh, uh, realm. Is there some realm of baseball that I saw this statement that that he was approaching the the uh, record of Babe Ruth of 62 or Mickey Mantle, sorry, of 62 in one season. That was the record in some part of the major league. Is there some other part where? It's well, just the Yankees. It's just the Yankees record thing. <laughs> is it a subset of all baseball or is it identical or, or mutually exclusive? Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Take care. Thanks, Derek.